Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and today we're going to be talking about electricity markets and restructuring of electricity markets with William Boyd. He's a professor of law at the University of California at Los Angeles. He was recommended to the podcast by Andrew McAllister. So just delighted to have William Boyd on the podcast today. Hey, William, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much, Ted. Really happy to be here. It's very nice. Very nice to meet you. And you said you said that you're in Boulder. Is that right? Right. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, where I, where I live part of the time. And I, I used to teach on the University of Colorado Law Faculty for about 10 years. Yeah. And so now, so you sort of go back and forth between Boulder and Berkeley. Is that the, the drill? Boulder and UCLA. Yeah. So Ooh. I'm back, back and forth between Los Angeles and Boulder. Um, I was conflating things. You went to you were you were a Berkeley student, but we'll we'll get there. That's uh, right. I wanted to I wanted to ask you uh, what are you working on right now? What's your what's your you've you published you researched so much you published so much. What's the what's the current focus? <laughs> so the big paper I'm working on right now is a paper on the sort of global history of electricity markets and the efforts to use markets to restructure and reform our electricity systems that really started back in the kind of late 70s and 80s. Um, the basic argument is that as we found out in California with the electricity crisis in 2000, 2001, and as we've seen more recently with some of the problems in the markets in Europe in particular over the last couple of years, the electricity markets have struggled um, in all kinds of ways for different reasons. And part of the argument of the, of the paper is that the electricity markets that we designed, you know, 30 years ago are no longer really fit for purpose. If we think about the way in which the technologies and the cost structures of generation are changing as we move toward renewable energy or a renewable energy dominated system, you know, we built these markets around the idea that <clears throat> thermal power plants uh, like natural gas plants would always be sort of on the margin setting the price of electricity. And as we move toward a renewables dominated future, we've got more so-called zero marginal cost resources in the market, and they can't really sort of get the investment that they need just through the market. So I argue that we need to rethink kind of markets generally for electricity, both in terms of how we want to use the power sector as the chief instrument of decarbonization for most of our economies. But also we need to be thinking long and hard about access and affordability because we obviously want people to use more electricity as they transition, you know, various aspects of their lives, heating, cooking, you know, transportation to, to an electrified future. And I think the two of those suggest that perhaps the market-based approach that we've taken over the last 40 years is really not going to get us where we need to go. Right. So, boy, that was a, that was a good, heady opening uh, <laughs> uh, professor. Uh, let's talk about that for a second, because, yeah, uh, you know, traditionally, I'm going to break it way down, you know, traditionally, yeah, please. you know, big power plants, you know, pumping power into big transmission lines and going to utilities and being and being sold. And uh, and so obviously that those power plants had had different costs associated with them. Uh, now we've got all of these different resources coming into the market. You mentioned zero marginal cost, and I, I think that's when there's really zero marginal value, right? Uh, the, the grid is already saturated and there's nowhere for the power to go. Is that what you meant by that? Well, it's more that, you know, think about a solar, 
a utility scale solar project or a big wind project, right? There are no fuel costs, right? The wind is free, the sun is free. And so essentially those projects are all capital costs, right? It's all the cost of actually building out the project. There are really no labor costs. There are no fuel costs. There's some modest operations and maintenance costs. But for all intents and purposes, there are no short-term marginal costs associated with using those resources. And the way we designed our electricity markets, we really had natural gas generation in mind, which has you know, significant fuel costs, obviously, that fluctuate quite a bit depending on the price of natural gas. And so as we transition away from a fossil fuel dominated system where we have positive short-term marginal costs driving the way that the market pricing works toward a system with zero marginal cost resources, that market structure doesn't really make sense. This is why almost all renewables all over the world, even in electricity markets are contract or basically financed through long-term contracts, right? So what's the, what's the solution then? So I guess I would argue that we need to be rethinking, you know, the basic approach to electricity as a system of provisioning. For sure, we want to continue uh, to use competition where we can. But if you look at the ways in which most governments around the world are thinking about promoting renewables and hitting their decarbonization targets, they're really using competition through government-run auctions and other types of policy instruments to get renewables providers or renewables project developers and owners to basically bid to get a long-term contract to provide that kind of electricity, right? To provide that electricity. And so that's very different than having a bunch of different generation bidding in to a centralized auction through a market, right? right. To provide that electricity. And so I think what we've learned over the last couple of years, and really we've known this for quite some time, is that electricity markets uh, are quite complicated and difficult to run. You're talking about a very complex machine that needs to be perfectly balanced in real time with lots of different generation coming in from all over the place. And obviously a more active demand side now too with households with distributed solar and demand response programs and things like that. So orchestrating and managing all of that is quite complicated. And it's not clear that the current market structures are able to do that. I don't have a crystal ball in terms of what the future holds here, but I know that within FERC, in the UK, in Europe, there's an ongoing effort to sort of rethink the basic approach to markets because our priorities for the electric power system are changing because we're realizing that this is the chief instrument of decarbonization for most of our economies. And in some ways it's too important to be left to markets. I think the market idea came in in large part because of the concerns about overinvestment and gold plating with regulated utilities and captured public utility regulators. And the idea is that our market-based system would be more efficient and would squeeze these assets and get more performance out of these assets. And all of that happened to a certain extent, but it turned out to be harder to run these markets than we thought. And so now we're, I think, at a tipping point in terms of what the future holds for the electric power sector. Doesn't, does that, I mean, you, you, you use the word complicated. Right when you were saying complicated, I, I was, I was jot, jotting down daunting. Um, when when you, you know, you're, you've got this huge, huge scale, this macro thinking about power markets and making this change from, uh, like you said, the market-based approach, the private, more private sector competitive to, doesn't it, isn't, aren't you just saying that we would have to have a lot more regulation? Is yeah. That I mean, I think, I think that's where we're headed. Um, I think we're seeing not so much a re-regulation and going back to the model that we had before, but I think there is a 
a, a, a preference for long-term contracts for renewables projects because of the financing challenges and the fact that this is all really about the cost of capital. And so that in some ways is a form of vertical integration, right? And those resources are essentially being compensated through the long-term contracts, not through the markets. They may get scheduled through the markets. And of course the pricing in those contracts could be related to the markets, sure, but in general- Sorry to interrupt, but you're sort of you're just amortizing their capital cost over time, right? To to determine what their quote unquote market their marginal cost is. Right. I think I think the way the way I think of it is if a clean energy future is truly a, a renewables dominated future, or even if it also includes a substantial amount of nuclear fission or maybe one day fusion, those are also resources that are largely, if not entirely, fixed capital costs, right? So there's some very modest fuel costs for nuclear fission, for fusion, right? It would be even less, right? And so we're moving toward a world where the generation resources essentially are zero marginal cost or very close to zero marginal cost. They're all capital costs. So the name of the game, it seems to me, in terms of building the least expensive system possible is to secure the lowest cost of capital possible. Yeah. There are really two ways you can do that historically that we've done that. One is through rate regulated cost of service, kind of traditional public utility regulation. And there's good evidence that historically that did result in a lower cost of capital. You get, though, with that, the incentive to overbuild and overinvest. And, you know, that's the concern that we have. But frankly, we need overinvestment right now. We need a lot of investment. So we need utilities. We need private actors. We need as many people as possible building as much renewables as, as, as we can get. The other way is through government financing, right? And so there are people who would argue that we should really be moving toward a publicly owned and operated system. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon in the United States or anywhere else. But I do think that the new Inflation Reduction Act rules on direct pay of, for, for tax credits, and we can get into the details of that if you want to, that that provides an opportunity for more public ownership of renewables projects. And there are some big municipal utilities like the LA Department of Water and Power that are certainly interested in continuing to own and operate generation and renewables generation. So my view is we should be experimenting with lots of different ownership structures in which we should really be paying attention to the, the overall cost of capital because that's going to determine the, the cost of the system that then need to be spread out across the ratepayers generally. Yeah. The number one thing in my view that we need to be focused on in this transition, and I think California is working hard on this, is how do we continue to ensure access and affordability for everyone. And there's a big concern, and I think it's a very legitimate concern, that as we ramp up the investment, the cost and the prices or the rates that people pay are going up significantly, which is making it harder for them to electrify various aspects of their lives. And right, so really just those to, two things together have to, those yeah. two things have to work together, it seems to me. Right. And that market-based approach was was wonderful in, in minimizing costs, right? Just hard costs, economic costs, as opposed to social costs, that, environmental. That's, that's right. The one caveat there is that we've seen in every single market, though, fairly significant presence or exercise of market power, which is often generated, you know, yeah. significant rents or profits for generators and not for consumers. And so there have been a number of studies that have been done to look at sort of who actually gained from the move to markets from restructuring. And there's really no strong evidence that consumers ultimately 
were the beneficiaries, that most of the gains in performance have gone to the generators and, and the private companies. And so this is a pervasive problem in electricity markets because, as you know, the way the electricity system works, it's very easy when the system is constrained to withhold generation, drive prices up, and obviously market power is 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 a real concern. Couple couple yes no questions. Uh, yeah. So right now you're working on a uh, you're working on research that turns into articles. That's right. I mean, it's I've written a series of articles on public utility regulation, electricity markets, electricity pricing, kind of the history of the concept of just and fair pricing in public utility regulation. Um, the way in which the electricity markets were designed around particular auctions, things like that. And this current paper is sort of a follow-on to all of that that looks globally at the history of markets and electricity, the problems in those markets, and then thinks about kind of a way forward that gets into, you know, how we design this kind of the governance system for the new age of electricity. So I look at you know, the early electricity restructuring efforts in Chile, in the UK, in the United States, in California, obviously, and then look at some of the problems across those various markets. Oh, great. Well, now I know why Andrew McAllister sent me your, your way. Commissioner <laughs> Andrew McAllister. So, so let's, let's, let's back all the way up. And uh, you're, you're, you're um, educated, born and raised. I, you went to University of North Carolina as an undergrad. Does that mean you're from North Carolina? I actually am from South Carolina, um, but I, yeah, went to North Carolina as an undergrad and spent, you know, basically my entire life until I got out of college was in, in the South, uh, and then, well, keep going. Sorry. Well, no, but then, well, then yeah. you, then you move west, right? Well, no, then I moved to go to Washington. That. I went to Washington D.C. and I worked for the World Resources Institute for a couple of years, okay. and that was in the early '90s and. During that time, the first Gulf War happened and energy was sort of very much on the agenda uh, in a way that I don't think it had been for much of the 1980s um, and really kind of was not kind of a prominent part of the agenda uh, in, in the, for the rest of the 90s. But I found out about this very interesting graduate program at Berkeley called the Energy and Resources Group. I did not know about that when I was in college. It was the last of the interdisciplinary PhD degree granting programs that Berkeley had created in the 1970s. It had been created by John Holdren, who was President Obama's science advisor and a group of very interesting physicists and economists and political scientists. And it was a beautiful and amazing place. And somehow I you know, was lucky enough to get in. I landed there in the early 90s and went on and got my PhD there and then picked up a law degree um, along the way as well. Uh, but I was, I'm very thankful to have found the Energy and Resources Group, affectionately known as ERG, among ERG. people who, who know it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and now you said picked up a law degree. That, that is a, that's gotta be an understatement. Um, why did you, why, why were you, why was the, what was the shift there? You were, you were doing your doctorate, but then you yeah. were law focus. What was going on? So I avoided law school like the plague uh, for a long time. My father was a lawyer. His father was a lawyer. Everybody I knew was a lawyer. Everybody was defaulting into law school after their undergraduate education. Cause they didn't seem to know what to do. And, I was determined uh, to go a different path, but as I was doing my PhD and my field work for my PhD back in the rural American South, looking at 
the forest products industry in the American South and the transformation of the landscape in the rural South during the post-New Deal period, it became more and more clear to me that law was a central part of the story. Mm. And I felt that having a law degree would sort of allow me to potentially go play in the sort of law and policy world in a way that I couldn't do perhaps with just a PhD, but perhaps to still get back to academia down the road. And I did want to get back to academia. I definitely am very happy as an academic, but I, I also felt like it was worth taking the chance, I guess, and the additional debt of getting a law degree then. And if I didn't do it, then I was never going to do it. So I ended up getting the law degree and the PhD at the same time, but I had more or less finished my dissertation. I had a little bit more to do when I started law school and it was a big shift. And there were times when I was like, why am I doing this? But uh, <laughs> overall, I think it was certainly the right choice. Well, congratulations. I mean, what, what wonderful credentials and, and what wonderful rationale. And, and then you mentioned the forest products. And, and I noticed in your, when I was doing a little bit of post <laughs> that in 2015, you wrote a book on, on I guess, forestry or the slain wood. You talk about that? Yeah, that's right. That was my dissertation. It took a long time, you know, because of various different jobs and kids and career moves and things like that to get the book out. But um, I was very happy to finally have the time to turn the dissertation into a book. And it it is an economic and environmental history of the pulp and paper industry in the American South, really from the 20s and 30s, the interwar New Deal period, all the way through the 20th century and into the current period. Um, the pulp and paper industry in the American South really moved into the American South uh, in the 20s and 30s when they figured out that Southern pine was rapidly regenerating on land that had been thoroughly degraded sort of after the Civil War uh, and that you could actually make paper products uh, out of a Southern pine that you could deal with the problem of too much resin in the wood. So they figured out the chemistry, they figured out, you know, that there was cheap land available. And of course, a lot of cheap labor available with racially segmented labor markets and all the problems with uh, racial uh, race relations uh, in the American South. And so the industry moved South in a big way and really turned timber into the region's number one cash crop radically transformed the landscape of the American South. If you've ever flown over the South, it's just a carpet of pine trees in, in many places, and they're all basic monoculture. So it really is an industrial crop that's being grown there. Um, and I kind of trace the history from the 1920s forward, as I said, but looked specifically at kind of four big problems that the industry had to solve. So they had to figure out how they were going to get the forests, landowners and others to grow trees. And there's a whole big story about how they got timber to become the number one cash crop. They had to figure out how they were going to organize labor uh, in the rural labor markets to log and move those trees to the mills. Uh, and that required dealing with all kinds of issues of race and class in the rural South. Um, they had to figure out how to obviously run their mills um, and turn trees into paper. Um, and that required, because these were large, very large, some of the largest paper mills in the world that required uh, a very sort of focused effort to discipline their mill labor force. Um, and there was a whole story there of how the unions and management were sort of conspiring together to deny black workers their proper seniority and ability to move up in the mill labor force. And the pulp and paper industry, despite being, or in part because it was heavily unionized, uh, was 
one of the most litigated industries in the South during the civil rights movement. God, you've really, you've really bounced, you've really bounced around. I want to help. We're, we're running out of time. Sorry. I want to bounce. I want to hit on a couple to- other topics for sure. And this one I think follows on beautifully, obviously the, the governor's climate and forest task force. I'd never heard of a, a subnational collaboration, 38, what state and provinces from Brazil to Indonesia, the United States. And, and you've maintained a role with that organization, as I understand, since 2009. Is that right? That's right. So the, this, yeah, the Governor's Climate and Forest Task Force was created in 2009, and I've been the project lead since we created it. It actually started with Governor Schwarzenegger in California when he was the governor. He held, the, I think, the first Global Governor's Climate Summit in Los Angeles in November of 2008. And a bunch of governors from all over the world came, but four governors from Brazil, two from Indonesia, and three from the U.S. came together and signed a memorandum of understanding to cooperate on climate and forest issues. And I was working closely with a friend of mine who was in the California government. And, you know, we thought we would sign this MOU and everybody would be happy and, you know, maybe that would be it. And then some foundations approached us and wanted us to do a couple of follow-up meetings. And we did, and we created this now formal structure. So at the time it was 10 states and provinces from three countries and since then, we're still going strong. We're now 43 states and provinces from 11 countries. One third of the world's tropical forests are in this. the states and provinces. All of the Brazilian Amazon, most of the Peruvian Amazon, most of Indonesia's forests. Oh, interesting. And it's really focused on trying to help these states and provinces build durable programs across their entire governments to promote sustainable land use and to reduce deforestation. 2021, you were involved with the, uh, in, in some ways, the Greening LA's Power Grid. Were, were you uh, part of a research team? Or what, what, what was your role in that? Yeah, I was part of a research team, and there's still an ongoing effort at UCLA that I've been sort of peripherally involved with in looking at LADWP in particular, but also LADWP compared to Southern California Edison as two different models, one on investor-owned utility regulated by the PUC, Southern California Edison, and one a municipally-owned utility, LADWP, and the kind of pros and cons of those different models in terms of trying to really promote and achieve the decarbonization, the really aggressive decarbonization uh, targets that LA in particular has taken on. Are you, is, is the conclusion that municipal utilities are the way to accomplish this? I don't think so. I mean, I'm a big fan of diversity of approaches going back to what I was saying earlier. And so in many respects, Southern California Edison, because of legislation in California, because of the PUC regulation, has moved quite a bit further than LADWP. I think LADWP is now moving quite fast and and being much more aggressive because the leadership of the city has changed. But my general view is that there are good munis and bad munis. There are good investor-owned utilities and bad investor-owned utilities. It really depends on the governance and the regulatory structure. And so California, because we have such an aggressive climate policy, we have a very active legislature and active PUC, we can make the IOUs do things. But now with LA and LADWP, I think there's all kinds of interesting opportunities there. It's really exciting. Yeah, really. It really is. We are living in incredibly exciting times. How do you keep balance in life? What's your What's your secret? You're a Colorado guy, so you're. I do as much backcountry skiing as I can, and get as get into the mountains whenever I can. I try to fly fish every now and then too, but not as much as I used to. But that always helps. Hey, it's been so good talking to you. Great to talk to you too. Thank you so much.
Have a great day. Cheers. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time. Thank you.